Uh, we're going to be in Judges chapter 8. We're continuing our study of defeat and deliverance as we make our way through the book of Judges. I hope that you've seen there are many parallels between modern America and ancient Israel, especially during this 400-year period of decline uh, here in the book of Judges. We've been the past few weeks looking at the life of Gideon. We've come now to the last chapter in his life, uh, Judges chapter 8. I want to talk to you this morning on this subject, winning the battle, losing the war. Now, we've all heard that saying, to win the battle but lose the war. And what that is is a proverb that refers to a, a hollow victory. That is a victory that has no real or lasting value. Or a victory that comes at such a high cost that it ends up leading to an ultimate defeat in the end. And the battlefields of history are replete with numerous examples of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, as my friend Preston would say. Let me give you just a couple of examples from American history of winning the battle, losing the war. The Battle of Chancellorsville. It happened in 1863 during America's Civil War. That battle is often referred to as Lee's Masterpiece because despite being outnumbered two to one, Robert E. Lee sent the Union Army in retreat by cleverly dividing his forces. But during the battle, historians will note that Robert E. Lee lost 13,000 men and the most crushing of which was his best field commander, General Stonewall Jackson, who was actually injured by friendly fire and then died a few days later. Now, Lee won the battle, but if you know your history, he eventually surrendered the war at Appomattox Courthouse in 1865. So he won the battle, but he lost the war. Let me give you another example, Pearl Harbor. Now, we all know the Japanese surprise attack on December 7, 1941, is a day that will live in infamy of the words of President Roosevelt. It caught the U.S. Navy off guard. In that attack, thousands of American men were killed. Hundreds of aircraft were destroyed. Four major battleships were sunk, including the USS Arizona. However, it was that attack that mobilized the great military and industrial might of the U.S. to enter World War II. And later, it was the Japanese Admiral Yamamoto who actually planned the attack of Pearl Harbor, who confided in his diary, he said, quote, I fear that all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant. So Japan may have won the battle on that day. If you know your history, four years later, they surrendered and admitted defeat. Now, the reason why I mention that, winning the battle, losing the war, is because I think that's a way that we could sum up the life of Gideon and his career as a judge. He won the battle, but he lost the war. I wish that Gideon's story would have ended at chapter 7, where he had that amazing underdog victory over the Midianites, where he goes into battle with little more than some torches and some pots and some trumpets and a few 300 men, and there he takes over a larger force. We wish that the story of Gideon would have put a the end right there. But Gideon fell hard. He fell from a champ to a chump, if you will. And what did him in wasn't an invading army. It was himself. 
His defeat was an inside job. You see, he may have won the battle against an outside enemy, but he lost the war with sin. And by the way, we know that that's just one reason why the Bible is trustworthy and reliable because if this book were the invention of men, then it would leave out the part of the story that portrays the hero in the negative light. But you know, when God paints a picture, God paints it warts and all. He lets us see the good and the bad, the positive and the negative, the glory and the sin. Now in this chapter, Judges 8, we're going to see three temptations that got a hold of Gideon in the last days of his career. And it led to a disappointing downfall in his life. In fact, I would argue that Gideon's greatest battle came after his victory against the Midianites. Now take note, because if you're concerned about finishing well, this is a story we should all look at because Gideon started great with the Lord, but he faltered before he got across the finish line. And if you're at that stage in your life where you're looking to finish well, please note this. So how did Gideon win the battle but lose the war? Well, first off, as we open up chapter 8, I want you to notice that Gideon lost the war with anger. He lost the war with anger. Keep in mind, Gideon has just won a smashing victory. He and his 300 men have the Midianites on the ropes. In fact, they are retreating. They are looking to finish off the enemy. And Gideon and his men are pursuing them out of the land. In fact, they've already crossed the Jordan River. They're going to run them out like a bunch of scalded dogs. But Gideon's men are battle-weary. They're fatigued. And when they come to a little village named Sukkoth, Gideon goes to the men of the village, the leaders, and he asks them, he says, Look, my men are hungry. They're thirsty. They're famished. As we take rest here, will you please feed my army? But the people of Sukkoth refused to help Gideon's cause. So Gideon goes to another village nearby. Uh, Gideon goes to Peniel. And they turn down the man of God as well. Notice what happens in verse 4. The Bible says, Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. I am pushing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zuma already in your hand, that we should give you bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. Verse 8, And there he went up to Peniel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Peniel, When I come down again in peace, I will break down this tower. And so you notice here, as we open up this chapter, who could blame Gideon, right, for being frustrated with these sorry good-for-nothings, if you will. I think every pastor has fought this battle. He gets irritated or he gets frustrated with the lazy church member who won't lift a finger to help bear the ministry load, won't give, won't tithe, won't serve. Uh, you wonder if they're really even in the Lord's army. Every pastor has felt what Gideon felt in that moment, that they're not giving 110% to the overall cause of the mission. But you notice here that Gideon took their refusal way too personally. 
He promised to return to these two villages after he had chased down those generals and to punish them for not feeding his fighting men. And at this point, as I read that story, Gideon reminded me of this old hillbilly fella uh, who was bitten by a dog, and he went to go see the country doctor because he was starting to feel strange, and turned out that the dog was rabid, and this man had contracted rabies. Well, of course, these were in the primitive times of this country when there was really no viable treatment for rabies, and so the doctor had to break the bad news to this man. He said, I'm sorry. Uh, There's not much I can do for you, sir. Your situation is terminal. All that I can do medically is try to make you comfortable. But my advice to you, sir, is while you have your mind still about you, to go ahead and get all your affairs in order. And so the man sat back. He was disappointed. He was in shock. He couldn't believe it. But he asked the doctor, as the doctor was about to leave, he said, give me a piece of paper and a pencil. And so the man started to write furiously. The doctor told him, he said, all right, I'm going away to see another patient. I'll be back in an hour. He said, uh, while I'm away, go ahead and work on your last will and testament. And so an hour later, time went by. The doctor came back. As he got back into the office, he noticed that the man was still there sitting at the desk, writing furiously. And the doctor said, man, uh, sir, you are a thorough fellow. Have you been drawing up your will this whole time? And the hillbilly uh, popped up his head. He said, no, sir, doc. He said, this ain't no will. He said, this right here is a list of all the people that I have a grudge against and I plan on biting them before I die. (laughs) It kind of reminds me of where Gideon was at this moment. He was full of anger. He was full of rage. He'd been insulted. He'd been shorted. And everybody who's uh, been there knows the battle within that we face with anger. Well, the Bible says that Gideon eventually did capture the Midianite generals. He had his prize. But Gideon should have stopped there. But like me, you can ask my wife, it's kind of hard to let things go sometimes. You know what I mean? You ever have to be the one that gets the last word in? Uh, You don't have to raise your hand and say amen, but if you're that kind of person, you know what I'm preaching about. Well, somebody said it years ago, and they were right, that anger is a form of temporary insanity. You're going to say things, you're going to do things when you're angry that you normally wouldn't do because you're out of your mind. Well, that's where Gideon was. The Bible says that Gideon captures these Midianite generals and then he goes back to these two little towns, Succoth and Peniel, and look at what he does. A man of his word. Verse 13 is where we'll pick up the story. And then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, And he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about who you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of them already in your hand? Then what should we give bread to you for your men who are exhausted? He took, watch this, the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them and taught The men of Sukkoth, a lesson. In other words, he beat them within an inch of their life. 17. And he broke down the tower of Peniel and killed, yes, you read that the right way, he killed the men of the city. This is supposed to be God's judge. This is supposed to be God's deliverer. This is supposed to be God's man. And yet you see him, he's won the battle against the Midianites, but he's lost the war against his own angry spirit. Now, if Gideon were a modern military leader, 
he would have been court-martialed and tried for war crimes. In fact, I'm not real sure about that today because we don't see any reprisals going against the generals and the military leaders of our nation who obviously bungled the exit from Afghanistan, but that's another point. But notice this, Gideon abused his power. And he goes from being a deliverer to a despot. Notice this. God has just done a tremendous thing through the life of Gideon. He has given him a tremendous victory with a ragtag army, driven out one of the most powerful forces in the world at that time. And yet, Gideon's victory hasn't made him worshipful. It hasn't made him humble. He is vindictive and power hungry. How are Gideon's vengeful acts against Sukkoth and Peniel any better than what Midian had done to them? He goes from being a deliverer to being a despot. And it all starts with the anger in his heart. Let me pause here just to get on a little soapbox and probe your mind here for a moment. Do you remember, can you recall a time in your life, in your Christian walk, where there was so much anger and rage in the hearts of people today? I know it's getting close for the time of the return of the Lord Jesus because the Bible says that hearts will grow cold, lawlessness will abound, and people will be at each other's throats. Have you ever lived in a time in this country, maybe some of you have, uh, you can remember the civil rights of the 1960s and some of the rights that took place during that time period, but I'm talking about the last two years. Can you remember a time where people were so full of hatred, anger, rage at each other's throats. Here's what Gallup revealed. There was a survey done by the Gallup group that concluded that, quote, listen to this, more people felt stressed, sad, angry, and worried in 2020 and 2021 more than any other point in Gallup's history of indexing stats and trends. In other words, what that study concluded is that we are as a people, as a nation, yes, even as a church, angrier at each other than we've ever been. Can I get a witness? I don't have to preach very hard about that, especially if you spend five minutes on social media. In fact, listen to this study. Nearly every indicator has dramatically increased since COVID began. Domestic abuse, up. Road rage incidents, up. Murders, up. You can guess the cause of all of this. Divisive politics, the article said. Racial strife, protesting, disagreements over masks and vaccine mandates, distrust of the media, big tech, and hatred for the police. Gideon won the battle, but he lost the war with his angry spirit. I'm telling you right now, standing today in 2021, to tell you that the church is in a similar position we are on the precipice of losing big, losing ourselves, losing the unity in the body of Christ because we're so angry with each other. Boy, it got quiet in here. Much of this same anger that's in the culture against each other has spilled into the church. Christians are angry at each other today over politics. They're angry at each other over who wears masks and who doesn't. Who has the shot and who doesn't. By the way, that shouldn't matter according to Romans 14. Uh, let them have their choice. It should be freedom. Uh, but we shouldn't be at each other's throats over these incidental things. Christians are mad at each other because one group isn't woke enough for the other. 
We got a world, listen to me, a world that is lost and going to hell on a runaway train and Satan has us killing and fighting each other just as Gideon turned back on his own countrymen and declared war on them. We've done the same thing in the body of Christ. My heart is broken a couple weeks ago as I preached to you. I turned into a blubbering, weeping mess. You know why? Because as a church, as a whole, I'm talking about broad strokes in the United States, we have torn each other to shreds these past couple years over mass and politics and on social media and all these things that the devil has got us spinning and toiling around. And God needs to help us to realize, hey, we're in the minority. There's too few of us left here in this United States to be fighting each other. By the way, we've got a greater enemy beside uh, our brother and sister in Christ. That's not my enemy. My enemy is a satanic movement that is sweeping through this country right now. I've got a greater enemy that should have my attention, like critical race theory, like socialism, like fear, like the anti-God, anti-family attitude among so many in our culture, like the cancel culture, like so many other things that are, are showing themselves in this day and age. I don't have time to fight you over these things. And friend, if you've been cross, if you've been angry, if you've been upset over a brother or sister in Christ, I'm calling you today to come and repent because we need revival in the church. We need broken hearts in the church. We need John 13, 35. They will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can we stop cutting each other down and judging each other and posting about each other on Facebook and let's unify as the church of God as the people of God around the gospel of Jesus Christ and let our world know, hey, there's hope. There's a message. There's salvation in Jesus Christ. If we spend as much time and energy tearing each other up as we would about praying and serving each other, imagine what God could do in the church. Friend, I'm telling you, if you've been angry, you've been harsh with a fellow believer in Christ, Please come to the altar and repent today. Because I need you. The church needs you. We need to be unified. We need to be together. We need to be all in for Jesus Christ. Because I'm telling you, we crossed a point last year, and I think it's going to get a lot harder to be a child of God and to be a Bible-believing Christian in this world. And we need each other. Gideon lost sight of all that. He lost the battle with anger. I made this point in my notes as I studied this week. Look at this takeaway. The desire for revenge promises a victory it can't deliver. When someone does us wrong, like Gideon was done wrong in this passage, we always want to take matters into our own hands, don't we? i got to get the last word. Wait till I get even. Wait till I get the last comment in on social media or whatever. If we do that and we seek for revenge, you know what it does? It drags us down to the level of our enemy. And more importantly, it tarnishes our testimony. And it ruins what we want to do for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the world looks at the church and says, they can't even love each other. Why in the world would I want to go down there and hear what their book has to say? God help us. Help us to realize in this day that we can lose the battle, we can lose the war with ourselves and with sin. 
And you know what? Revenge doesn't really even bring the fair justice that we think it will because we always have a tendency to go overboard. Listen to what Lewis Smedes wrote about this, a Christian author. He said this, quote, he said, The problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never actually evens the score. Fairness, he said, never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered and unpredictable course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. Both are stuck on the escalator as long as parity is demanded. And the escalator never stops to let anyone off. God help us to be people of grace, to be people of a second chance, to be people of forgiveness and love. Because Gideon's career began to go downhill when he lost the war with anger. Then notice this. Not only did he lose against anger, but secondly, Gideon lost the war with arrogance. He lost the war with arrogance. Now, in the eyes of many, Gideon was like a national hero for a moment. He's kind of like George Washington in the mythos and in the culture of the Israelites at this time. Think about it. A few days ago, when God found Gideon, the people would not have even elected him to be dog catcher. And now, as he comes back right in this high wave of victory, they want to make Gideon their king. Notice what verse 22 says. The Bible says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, and the, but the Lord will rule over you. Now, this is a moment when I first studied this story, I thought, all right. Yes, Gideon, he gets it. Okay, he had a little problem there with his anger. But as you keep reading, you think here, this guy deserves a pat on the back. What restraint it must have taken to not clutch for the crown. But as you keep reading, what follows next is one of the most puzzling inconsistencies of a character that you will ever find in the Word of God. Gideon may have refused to be the king and to carry the title, but that did not prevent him from accepting the gifts fit for a king. Notice what happens here. Verse 24, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmael. I was talking about what they had conquered from the other people. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in his earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, a little over 40 pounds of gold, the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And watch this, verse 27, And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orpha. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. So think about this. Gideon comes back. They say, you've done such a great job leading us to victory over the Midianites. We want you to be our king. Gideon says, no, uh, the Lord will be your king. But I do have one thing for you. 
Bring out all your spoil. Bring out all the gold earrings. Bring out all the trinkets that you amass in that victory. And let's pile it up here. And what Gideon does from this, the Bible says, is he fashions an ephod. And then he places that in his hometown like a trophy. Now you may be asking, Derek, what is an ephod? An ephod was a holy garment that resembled the fancy apron that was worn by the high priest. Here's a picture of it on your screen. Now you'll notice the breastplate there that the priest would wear was made of 12 precious stones, each one representative of one of the tribes in Israel, 12 tribes, 12 stones. So Gideon fashions like a counterfeit ephod in competition with the high priest. And so this ephod or this uh, garment pointed to the role of a priest. And a priest, remember, is somebody who stood as a representative, as a mediator between the people, between man, and between God. Notice what Gideon is doing here. He's not just making a trophy for himself. Gideon is usurping the priesthood model that God had gave his people on how to properly approach him in worship. There was only one individual who was supposed to wear this and to go into the holy place and the holy of holies to make atonement for the sin of God's people. And what Gideon was doing is he was circumventing all this and he's saying with this ephod, Hey Israel, don't forget about me. Uh, don't forget, I'm your man. I'm your mediator. I'm the go-between. I'm the one who heard the voice of God. I'm the one who delivered you. You see what is in his heart right here? It isn't humility, it isn't service, it isn't love, it's arrogant pride. And so, think about this ephod as it hung there in the town square of Orpha. Every time that somebody walked by and they saw that golden ephod, they would naturally think back to Gideon and say, Man, that Gideon, he was, he was a man's man. I wish he was still able-bodied and I wish that he was still leading. And, I wish... and so, it stood there as an idol, really. Because the Bible says that as people saw it, they began to whore after other gods. They, they, it became a snare to them. It became an idol to them. And notice that Gideon took his success, his fame, and his wealth, and he enshrined it, and he really created a cult of Gideon around all of it. And the great irony of this, if you go back and you read some of the earlier chapters, Gideon's nickname was Jerubbabel, which means ball slayer. Or or Baal conqueror, in his early days, Gideon made a reputation for smashing the idols of Baal, and yet here he has become the very thing that God called him to uh, use to be a destructive force against the idols. He's become an idol maker. And with Gideon, what we see here is something that you don't see in any of the other judges. The Bible says that they hoard after other gods. In other words, the people fell away while Gideon was still in the position of the judge. If you study the judges, in every other case, we see that the, the people fall away after the judge had died. After his memory was gone. After a generation rose up and they knew not the Word of God. Gideon's generation, notice this, fell away while he was still in power. Because... He had become a celebrity in his own head and he creates this ephod and this whole cult around himself. And notice, his greatest victory ends up becoming his biggest defeat. 
the people are actually worse off when Gideon's done leading than where they were before. I read a story about Billy Graham a long time ago, and I've always kept it in mind. You know, Billy Graham was always being accosted by reporters and, and news people. And one time he was asked, Mr. Graham, why is it? You seem like you're a simple man. Why is it that you've been so remarkably successful in preaching, in your meetings, in your crusades, than any other person in history? I mean, Mr. Graham, you can draw crowds and you can get results like not even some world leaders can get. What is it about your message? What, what is it about this simple gospel? What is it that's so special about Billy Graham? The reporters would ask. And Billy Graham always deflected. And he would always tell this story. It went something like this. He'd say, if you were walking down a road and you happened to come upon a turtle sitting on top of a fence post, what would you conclude? And the reporter would say something like, well, I guess... That means that he didn't get up there by himself. Anybody ever seen a turtle climbing a pole? I haven't, unless it's a ninja turtle. <laughs> but you would assume that someone far larger than the turtle, he would say, had picked up that creature and placed him on a tall post for some mysterious reason. And what was Billy Graham's point? His point was this, that God, for some mysterious and sovereign reason, had elevated this simple preacher and given him a ministry platform for reasons only known to heaven. And it was a way of reminding himself and the people around him, I'm just a mouthpiece. I should be humble because I'm really nobody. But God chose me and God gifted me and God for some reason is using me. As I think about that, Oh, friend, we must beware of golden ephods in our lives, in our churches, in our ministry. Any ministry, any church, any leader can fall into this trap. Like Gideon, the church leader can start off strong. But as they become successful, as they see results in their ministry, as God gives them victory in battle after battle, the people, it can go to their head, it can go to the leader's head, and they can think, Oh, it's really all about me, about my talents, about my gifts, about my leadership, about my charisma. And pretty soon when you see that, they start straying from the Word of God. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen to preachers. I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen it happen to individuals who set up a golden ephod in their life and they forget who they were and how God found them. Gideon forgot about who he was and how God found him. God came to him when he was weak and scared in the bottom of a hole. He wasn't nobody till the angel of the Lord tapped him on the shoulder and said, Gideon, I've got a great mission for you. Some of us need to be reminded of that. Just think about who you were and the circumstances around where you were when God found you. There ain't nothing special about Derek McCarson. There's nothing uh, boasting about me or about my ministry or nothing that I can take credit for because I know who I was. I know where I was when God came by and He touched me and He found me and He said, I've got something for you that you won't even believe. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? He said, don't be deceived. The thieves or the drunkards or the sexually immoral or the swindlers and so on shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
before you were redeemed and before you were saved. Some of our ministry leaders, some of our pastors, uh, some of our music leaders, some of us need to be reminded we wasn't nobody until God came along and found us. Till the Spirit of God touched us and anointed us and gifted us to be used. God don't need me. He doesn't need you. He can do this without me. But by His grace and by His sovereignty, He has elected that I'll be a part of the church and be a part of that. Get in lost sight of all this. And you can too. Has God given you victory in your life? God giving you victory over a disease. God giving you victory in your personal life, in your business, in your finances. God delivered you when you didn't see a way out. And you know what? In a social media type culture where we like to post everything about how good we are, we can believe our own lies. And we can set up a golden ephod for ourselves. And we can forget who it's really all about. It ain't about me. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about what God does with broken and weak people. It's about what God does with runaways and shutaways and people who resist the will of God. It's about people who give excuses. Oh God, you can't use me. Look at my past. Look at my weakness. Look at uh, what I've done. God, you can't use me. It's about what God can do through a weak, humble person. Gideon lost sight of all of that and he let it go to his head. And I'm telling you, there's some Christians today who forget real quick about the goodness of God in their life. And they need to return and repent. And they need to be humble before God again and realize that you weren't nobody. I wasn't nobody until Jesus Christ came along and changed me. And were it not for Jesus Christ, I might be drunk in a ditch somewhere. I might have a needle hanging out of my arm. I'd be just as bad as somebody else out there lost and hellbound. But thank God for the grace of God. You see, Gideon forgot all that. I noticed this lesson as I studied this week. Pride is the enemy which can turn a victory into a defeat. Pride is the enemy which takes the victory and turns it into defeat. When Gideon was small and weak, he was dependent on God. But it's when he got strong, when he let it go to his head, he made it about himself and not about God. Andrew Boner, the great Christian writer, said this. He said, let us be watchful after the victory as before the battle. You know why? Because sometimes the greatest challenge we face is not the battle itself. It's dealing with the after effects of the battle. That's where Gideon was. He lost the war with anger. He lost the war with his arrogance. God, I wish that his story would have ended in Judges chapter 7. I wish I didn't have to read this and preach this. But then thirdly, look at this. Gideon lost the war with affluence. You know why this is in here? It's a warning to you and me. Take note of this great man of God, the great things that God did through him and with him. But oh boy, did he fall flat on his face. Notice what it says in verse 29. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. And now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring. He was a busy man. I have my hands full with just three. For he had, watch this, many Wives. 
Has that ever worked out in the Bible, by the way? Anybody who tried that in the Bible, boy, did they have trouble. Verse 31, And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Hold on to that, that's important. And Gideon the son of Joash died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Orpha of the Abizarites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Baalbareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all the enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. Hang on, I'm almost done. In the end, look at this. Despite his achievements, Gideon leaves the people worse off than when he started leading them as a judge in the beginning. You think, Derek, how is that? They were under oppression from the Midianites. Yes, but look, they turned to other gods. He won the battle, but he didn't finish strong, and he lost the war. There's some men who need to think about that today. How are you leading your family? The choices you're making, the decisions that you're making in your life, and I'm not picking on anybody, I'm just telling you, as a general statement, I want to finish well. I want to start early. I want to run strong. I want to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for my Christ and my God. And I want to cross the finish line with my chest going across that tape. And I want to hear, well done and good and faithful servant. But Gideon, he lives the last of his life as a royal playboy. Notice this, the Bible says not only did he have a harem of wives, but think about all that wealth that he plundered from the Midianites. Notice what he named his son. The Bible says he has a son, one of 70. He names one of them Abimelech. You know what that means? My dad is king. Every time he called the name of that boy, he was claiming the title of king for himself. What a puzzling inconsistency. No, he didn't want the title, but he sure did like the praise and the attaboys that came along with it. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God gave Moses some stipulations for when they did come into the land of leaders, what they were not to do. Notice Deuteronomy 17, 17 says this, And he, a king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Gideon disregarded all of that. You know, some, one of the worst things that's happened to some people in life is they finally arrived. They got the big paycheck. They got the promotion. They got the place at the lake. They got blessed beyond what their character had prepared them for. And that's where Gideon was. All the accolades, all the arrogance, all the riches, all the women, it went straight to his head and he lost his walk with God at the end of his life. Oh God, help us. I don't want to falter before the finish. I want to run hard and strong for Jesus Christ. I want my legacy to count for something. I don't want it to amount up to nothing at the end and saying, 
Well, he was a good man. He preached the gospel and he pastored the church, but he cheated on his wife. But he loved the almighty dollar. But he sold his soul so he could put butts in seats and he compromised the gospel. God, help me. I don't want to be a castaway for Jesus Christ. It causes me to be humble every day to understand I need God every day. I hadn't arrived. God, keep my pride in check. God, help me to remember my marriage vow. God, help me to regard your word as pure and holy. God, help me to remember I've got three little ones who are watching everything I say and do. I can't falter. I can't fail, God. i got too many people watching my life. Oh, God, help me. If you don't read this passage and if it don't strike at your heart and say, God, help me to finish strong. Oh, that's what I take away from it. This man of God who stood on the day of victory, who shouted the victory, boy, did he fall. Here's the takeaway. Most who walk with God can win the battle with adversary, but few can win the battle with prosperity. Let me say that again. Most who walk with God can win the battle with adversity, but few can win the battle with prosperity. That's what happened in Gideon's life. He got fat, he got sassy, he got happy, he got comfortable. By the way, isn't that what's happened to the church here in the United States? Adversity never hurts the church. Persecution never destroys the church. But you know what does? Riches and comfort and ease. Things going our way. Prosperity dulls our spiritual desire because... There's plenty of money in the bank account when our health is good and things are going our way. What do we need God for? That's what happened in Gideon's life. I read an interesting story about Muhammad Ali, and I'm closing with this. Many of you know Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer, heavyweight champion of the world three times. His face, I read, appeared more on Sports Illustrated magazine than any other athlete except one. Michael Jordan. And when he was floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee, he was king of the ring. He was always followed by an entourage of reporters and trainers and support staff. His comet rose high and bright throughout the sports world. But you know what happened to Mr. Ali? He got sick with Parkinson's disease. There was a sports writer named Gary Smith who went to visit him before he got real bad off. Here's what he wrote. Listen to this. Muhammad Ali escorted me to a barn next to his farmhouse. On the floor, leaning against the walls, were mementos of Muhammad Ali in his prime. Photos and portraits of the champ punching and dancing. That sculpted body. Fists in the air. Championship belt held high. The thriller in Manila. But on the pictures were white streaks of bird droppings. The writer said, As I looked up into the rafters, I noticed that pigeons had made their home in Muhammad Ali's personal trophy shrine. And they have defecated 
on his greatest accomplishments. And then he did something significant. Perhaps he said it was a gesture of closure. Maybe it was a statement of despair. Whatever the reason, I watched this broken man walk over to a row of pictures of himself in his prime. And he turned them all around, facing the wall, covered in bird droppings. He then walked to the door and he stared out into the countryside and he mumbled something so low I had to ask him to repeat it. And he said this, I had the world and now look, it ain't nothing and I'm nothing. For a brief fleeting moment, Gideon had the world. He had victory. He had a popularity. He had a name. But by his own sin, it all amounted to very little in the end. His greatest championship, his greatest achievement ends up being for nothing. He went from champ to chump. He won the battle, but he lost the war. And I tell you that because you and I can do the same thing. We're susceptible. We're just as broken and messed up and weak as Gideon is. But the good news is this. (laughs) The good news is is this. We don't have to make the same mistakes. And the even better news is there is a champion who's greater than Gideon. His name is Jesus Christ. And in every way that I have failed, and in every way that every other man or woman has failed, there is a champion who stands tall above all. And when the dust settles, His name will be the only name to be remembered throughout eternity. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. The champion of all ages. The undisputed, undefeated champion of love. Every way that Gideon failed, Jesus succeeded. So what's the point? As I read this story, I realize I need a better Savior. I need somebody better than Gideon to save me. Gideon was a broken Savior and thus showed the need for a perfect, sinless Savior who could win the war that we could not. Let me show you this as I close. Gideon was tempted three times and failed. Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness by Satan and passed. Gideon succumbed to anger, whipped his countrymen with thorns and shed their blood. But Jesus was the object of man's anger. He was whipped, crowned with thorns, and shed his blood. Gideon amassed wealth and fame for sinful reasons, but Jesus gave up all his, all his heavenly wealth and fame to save you and me from sin. Gideon posed as a priest, and his legacy was a golden ephod. Jesus was our high priest, and his legacy was dying naked on a cross. Gideon is the story of a judge's victory leading to tragedy, But the death and the resurrection of Jesus is a story of the Savior's tragedy leading to the Savior's victory. Oh God, what have I put my hope in? What have I put my trust in that wasn't worthy? In those days they said, Gideon, we want you to be king. You're the man, dog. You sent those Midianites running. But oh Gideon... He was a broken sinner just like you and me. God help me not to put my hope and trust in a man in the White House. God help me not to put my hope and trust in doctors who, by the way, don't have all the answers. 
God, help me not to put my, my hope and trust in the government or Wall Street or the CDC or Hollywood or any of these other golden ephods that have been put up in the world. Help me to turn to Jesus Christ and Him only. Because He's the only Savior. He's the only hope. 